Hey everybody, Jay here from The Rare Barrel and of course, the popular podcast, The Sour Hour. Just want to let you all know that we're currently hiring and our production staff at The Rare Barrel. So if you're interested in working with us and making great sour beer, log on to our social medias, our websites, therarebarrel.com slash blog. Check out our job posting. I'd love to hear from you and hopefully we can work together on making sour beer even better than it is today. The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. That time again, back on the Sour Hour, back in the Brewing Network studios and wet, wet and wild downtown Concord right now. It's weird. What month is it? What, what month is what it? What is happening? Well, once it gets on the podcast, it's going to be like June. <laughs> so I, it's like 104 the day the show posts. The more we talk about like the current date, the, you know, the less uh, fresh it sounds. That's true. Show, so. That's true. Yes, it is. 2019 or 20. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's this is like uh, the shows with Dr. Lambert. It's like, Merry Christmas, and someone's listening on like February 3rd. Yeah, yeah well, good people times. are catching up too. So. Yes, exactly. Uh, that voice you hear is Scott. Hey, Scott. Hi. I'm your host, Jay. Uh, we've also got Bevo in the house. Hi. Kevin's talking a bunch, so I don't want to turn my microphone on. Oh, well, let's hear what Kevin's talking about. It's, I'm sure it's very exciting uh, back of house trying to stuff. get like uh, mop heads <laughs> and. <laughs> We're running dangerously low on rags around here. (laughs) (laughs) Tonight's guest, Fal Allen from Anderson Valley Brewing Company. Big deal. I love when I can say this. Literally wrote the book on Gozo. (laughs) Absolutely. Was he, I don't know about first to market, but first to mass market with a canned goes by a long shot. His canned goes has been around for years already. Absolutely. And uh, he's the guy to ask about that. No kidding. That's a good one to keep in the chamber for sure when uh, Fal joins us. He's in studio, by the way. Indeed. He braved the uh, few drops of rain that freak out Californians on a quarterly basis. Slam on the brakes. So that should be good. A lot of great beers uh, coming from Fal. If you want to join. With Justin's in the studio too. Hey, Justin. Hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, call in and talk to us. Eight eight eight. No, don't do that. Here. Skype. No. I mean, yeah. Skype us at the brewing. <laughs> the winds of change is blowing around oh, yeah, here for sure. I'm gonna have to update my uh, my opening notes. I mean, what I think at the top of every show. Uh, join us in the chat? Question mark. Yeah. Steve. <laughs> Not currently. Justin has my computer. Ah. Uh. Email us for feedback. <laughs> okay, that works. That definitely still and works. Carry your pigeon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The internet's down, so just uh, and, and emails. So just smoke uh, signals. Smoke signal. Yeah. Flash a mirror yeah, with uh, the sun. Scott at thebrewingnetwork.com. Jay at thebrewingnetwork.com. Watch us. I think video. Oh wait, now the color just changed. Maybe video on, might on be the working. camera. Video. No, the camera. When it's red, it means it's on you. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, it's always counterintuitive to me. Is it the red? The red blue. record light is seems to be up. Well, these two are blue down the middle. Uh, that's true. Yeah, the webcams are blue. And this then it's green when it's not. Or they, we there, now blue. it's green. Okay, so it's not. Now on it's me. on the overhead, and it can see all of us. It's like one of those uh, like spas with the LED color changing lights. It just kind of cycles through random colors. And now it's on Scott. Hi. Okay, so blue is Scott. 
Green is the overhead, and red is me. This is fascinating content for know, podcast right? listeners. I know. Yes. I'm also colorblind, so no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> Why are all the lights gray? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's happening. Listen Live also, Brewing Network app, still a thing. Search BN Mobile in your search bars in search places. Subscribe. Apple Podcasts, maybe uh, soon in new places. Spotify, that's a tease. There are other places other than iTunes. Right. Google Play. Google, there you Google go. Play. Stitcher. Stitcher. Stitcher, that's the one I'm thinking like of. Stitcher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're maybe expanding. Yes, we're going to try. Going to yeah. try. So, like, you know, another 10 years. Or <laughs> that'll be, that'll be, be awesome. You accepted by Spotify, which is the whole thing. Uh, yeah, and are we going are we to do a review of the week? Yeah, of course. Okay, let's do it. Review of the week. <laughs> this is from, an original song, Justin. Yeah, that's not covered. This is from Dr. War. The Sour Hour has consistently been both informational and entertaining since its inception. There's literally no episode where you won't find valuable information while cracking up at Jay and Scott's week. Three T's. Weird humor. The session, on the other hand, is a plague. <laughs> I'm afraid for my life. After listening to just 30 seconds of the session, a ring-like sequence occurred where I received a phone call from my own phone number with a raspy voice informing me that in seven days, all of my mixed fermentations will be riddled with high concentrations of THP. That was, was Bevo. <laughs> I immediately wet my pants and dumped all of my beer that I've been carefully shepherding for months. My house smells like mouse pee and Cheerios. Do not listen to the session. They will ruin your beer and invade your dreams. Run. Period. I was so hoping wow. for a great session rip. Justin was that, was, uh, that was an epic one from Dr. War. Thank you for the review, Dr. War. We appreciate it a lot, and I'm sorry about the smell in your home. Yeah. It is out of love, though, Justin. Oh, yeah. It's everyone's... <laughs> Feel it. <laughs> yeah. No one would write like that much if they didn't absolutely listen. To Never missed an episode all the time. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> all right. So, what else do we have going on? We did. We just did an episode earlier this week in our time, which was over at the new Russian River Brewing Company. I don't know how that's going to come out. That was, and by the way, it was awesome. Justin came up, and a lot of the uh, Brewing Network crew. So that was fun time. Vinny was very nice to host us all up there. What and, a great time! Uh, Wow, beautiful place. Beers are tasting awesome. I think pretty, pretty consistent with uh, you know how I think of the Russian River beers, but you know, it's still a work in progress, probably in Vinny's mind. But did you guys get to that in the, on the session, Justin? Like the difference between the consistency between kind of how the brands have been and what's coming out of the the new facility. Are you saying like how dialed in is his new system? Sure, like is yeah. Pliny Pliny to him? I didn't get to it on the air, but I did actually talk to him a little bit about that off air. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying was that some of the new breweries so high tech that he had to install some low tech in order to make the transition. So, for example, he has one of those um, hydrating uh, mash uh, 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 grist crushers. Yeah. Right. So that it crushes. Well, he had never done that before at the, at the old brewery. And so the efficiency changed drastically. Mm-hmm. So he bought one. And it, it'll end up, he was saying, it'll end up being, like, useless to him for the rest of the brewery's <laughs> career. He bought one that could do both. 
Wow. Which is, you know, who knows how much more that cost to do that. But he just knew that he couldn't just go start making Pliny with a completely different way to crush your grain because the efficiency just skyrocketed. Sure. So he like slowly transitioned from dry to wet. So like a couple examples like that, because he's a real stickler about things tasting like they should. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, they uh, put in an entirely new sensory lab and they do a lot of triangle testing in there. Uh, to as they're making little tweaks to figure out does it still taste like Pliny? Does it still taste like pig? Yeah. So you guys got to go do that, right? The Hoppernate team did. Did you go do sensory also, Scott? Yeah, yeah. It was it was really cool. It's an amazing little uh, where like the the sensory lab lady. She she sort of slides. It's like a D, you're taking a test of the DMV, you know, with dividers <laughs> and everything. Hopefully and the, it's cooler than that. But. Much much more fun. The little there's like a little window in front of you. You're at this little cubicle desk, and the window sort of slides open, and there she is, like, and she slides you a couple samples, gives you a sheet. Just a really cool setup. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, was great participating. A uh, great honor to be recording up there. We did it in the cool ship room, which was beautiful and unique and incredible, steamy. Yeah, they had pumped in some <laughs> some fresh wort that day. Yeah, it was real warm in there. Yeah. And as far as far as the grain, uh, the grain efficiency, Justin was mentioning. I think did I hear Vinny say it's twenty percent? His costs are down twenty percent on yeah. grain. It's huge. Yeah, I for, he didn't give me that number. I wish I could remember the other number he gave me because. It added up to thousands of pounds of grain per year, right? Whatever wow. it was, by by being more efficient like that. That's so, cool. Which is, yeah, that's just that's a lot of cash, huge over time. And that we're just thinking of it in as one year. You know, you got to think of some of these brewery improvements as as a twenty year investment, right? So exactly. Over the course of twenty years, has he bought the brewery by those efficiency? You, you yeah. see what I mean? Like, yeah. It's a lot of it's a lot of cash. Absolutely. Yeah, they're installing things that they weren't even going to use for years, like progressive reuse of wastewater and stuff and it's like oh we can't do this yet but might as well plumb it now yeah and lobby people to be like this is what how things should be done and then when they're ready to go they're not going to go back and do that so yeah that's yeah. pretty cool and and they're already i think he was saying like a net zero on the municipal water system yeah already mm-hmm. amazing yeah. great place i definitely recommend if you're in northern california to go to the rare barrel no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Windsor, Russian River, and the original location. I hear a lot of people coming into town, going to both. So, yeah, the original location is definitely worth a visit as well. The the stark difference. Do, do both and be prepared to be blown away by the difference between being in the brew pub in Santa Rosa and at the campus. Especially with in Windsor. Tour. I mean, the tour yeah, really yeah. shows you the difference there. Yes. And can I do just a, a quick PSA for uh, Sonoma County while, while we're at it, while you're talking about going there as a tourist and seeing these places? Is that I did? I talked to Vinny a little bit about that too, and you know he's a diehard Sonoma County boy, and tourism has not returned mm-hmm. since the fires a couple years ago. Things are very, very different there, and they're very difficult for a lot of people there because of that. You know, it's wine country, and and I think Russian River turned it into beer country. Uh, of course, Lagunitas is up there uh, in Petaluma, and. I guess on top of all the wonderful reasons that you're saying you should go to Russian River, um, that community, you know, we tend to everyone, uh, everyone, you know, rises up to help right when it happens. And then we kind of forget things and we forget that there's like a long road to recovery. Mm-hmm. And Sonoma County could still use um, your tourism. Uh, it's a Absolutely. beautiful place to go. There's wineries everywhere. It does not look like a war zone like people might think. In no. fact, I I can't even tell. Um, but 
it still affects the community, you know, a, a couple years later now. So, you know, if you were putting something on your list for, for where to go and why to go there, uh, not only is Russian River just a magical brewery to visit, but um, you'd be helping out a community that still needs it. Absolutely. Wonderful restaurants, great wineries, of course, Russian River's up there. Uh, a lot of just great outdoorsy things to do, too. Mm-hmm. Right after uh, some of those fires went up and stayed in Calistoga for a weekend. And that was, you know, really awesome. And then kind of right in between. So there's like kind of the two valleys, the Napa and Sonoma valleys. And in between, there's like this, you know, kind of mountainous range. And right in the middle of those, so if you drive from Windsor to Calistoga, there's a place called Safari West. Oh. And you go up and it's like a bunch of animals you'd expect to see in a safari in Africa. They have like elephants and giraffes and like rhinos and all sorts that. of crazy stuff. They actually got affected pretty badly by the uh, the fires. The owners of that place, uh, their house burned down. Mm. But it's part of the reason was they were out trying to save all the animals. And so they just ignored their house. So, I mean, there's there's just like a lot of great things to do. Yeah. And yeah, agreed. It's like, you can't really tell, but it's a beautiful area. It is. So how do you even save animal? You just show up with a huge box truck. What, what do you do? Just jars of peanut butter. They follow you. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Yeah. yeah. No, get on, get on the ark. Two yeah, by two. No, all the animals are fine, which was awesome. Oh, um, that's good. And yeah, so go visit Safari West while you're up at Russian River, too. There you go. All right, I think we should get to a break, bring yes. in Fal, and then uh, drink some Gozes. What do you think? That sounds perfect. All right, take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Hey, this is Lauren from New Belgium Brewing Company, and you are listening and learning from the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. We are back. Live reminder that we'll get to get Sal to do the same thing. Indeed. Good call. Good call. Uh, And let's tease it no longer. We have Fal Allen here in the studio with us. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, good. Good to see you. Fal has not been in the Brewing Network studio since 2011 when it was a spare bedroom in Justin's rental house. Yeah, that was a thing. That's a two-term presidency yeah. right there. No it's kidding. The house was, a, house was a little bit of a hot mess, but the studio... <laughs> you don't say. Yeah, the studio is it was like this one. It's beautiful. It's, it's the just, same desk. Oh, really? Yes. Super, wow. super professional looking and sounding. Super professional looking. Not yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> hey, we've got a camera here, right? Yes, we do. We do. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we do. Well, welcome back, man. It's nice well, to have thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, since that time, and I, as I tease in the first segment, you have literally written the book on Goza, which yes, is... Yes, I have. Which camera's on here? Let's show it. Put it on this one? The, uh, that one? This one, yeah. I'm going to yeah. show it to this guy. So, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. Back when uh, I was on... On your guys' show in 2011, I'd never even heard of a ghost, I don't think, um, much less brewed one. And then we we were futzing around with doing a sour mash, our, our lab guy, Andy Hooper, who now works at uh, Seismic Brewing. He's a, the head brewer out there. Uh, he said, hey, I want to try a sour mash. And, you know, I tried them before, and they they were not good. The ones that I did, they they sucked. What was wrong with them? Uh, they all smelled like Foot Locker, you know, uh, gym clothes. The store meat or like an actual Foot Locker? No, no, like the actual okay. Foot Locker, like, like Toe Jams, man. Okay. And it's like his Foot Locker kind of smells like pleasant leather. They might be a sponsor someday. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah, this show brought to you by Foot Locker. Great. Yes, we, Foot Locker. We love Foot Locker the store, but not Foot Locker the smell. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he, he did this mash and... 
you know, we, we went through the whole thing and it was horrible. And we actually ended up dumping the beer, which no one, no brewer likes to do. And I said to Andy, huh, so what do you think went wrong? And, you know, Andy's a really smart guy. And he said, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Nice. And I thought, oh, if Andy's going to find out, I better find some out too. Otherwise, I'm going to look like a dummy. So I did a bunch of reading. He did a bunch of reading. And we came up with pretty much the same conclusion that uh, you got to get your, your wort off your mash as soon as possible because your mash is entrained with a lot of air bubbles, which is good. It floats up the mash and buoys it up during loudering. You want that. But if you're making a sour beer and you're letting it sit for a day or three days, you don't want it on that air because the air uh, feeds the butyric, uh, the bacteria that make butyric acid and all kinds of other horrible, cheesy, footy smells. So we both decided you get it off the grain as soon as you can. So you mash normal runoff, get it into the kettle and do your souring there. Either let it sour naturally, which takes a few days, or, you know, pitch in a, a culture. And we decided we'd pitch in a culture to speed things up and to blanket the top of it. Uh, with some inert gas. And, you know, your mash tun, the diameter of your mash tun is very big, and the diameter of your kettle is a lot smaller for obvious reasons if you're a brewer. And so that also cuts down on the surface area that the air, you know, interacts with the liquid. So we did that, and, you know, we were talking about doing it. We hadn't done it yet. We were talking about doing it. We were sitting and having a beer at the pub, and uh, my next-door neighbor, Mike Luparello, who's a great home brewer, uh, comes in and says, you know, he's listening over our shoulders, and he says, hey, that sounds a good way to make a goza. And I said, a what? <laughs> he said, a goza. I never heard of a goza. And Andy had never heard. No one, you know. Um, are, we, are we in like 2012 here? Like, what, do you remember the year-ish? 11 or 12, you know, uh, somewhere in there. And uh, I don't know. I, I talk about it in the book, but, you know, I don't remember what I actually wrote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but apparently I had heard about it many years ago at uh, a lecture that Randy Mosier gave. And, you know, back then, back in the 90s, we were trying to figure out what an IPA was. And a sour, salty German beer was just way too much for me to, you know, grasp. You know, we did, we got some samples of Goza from Germany. And, you know, we read a few things online and we thought, you know, that does sound like a good way to make a Goza. And we did. And, you know, as brewers are, we all argued over how much salt there should be, how sour it should be. Some people, of course, wanted this giant, sour, salty bomb. And the you know the the more mature ones of us wanted something a little more restrained. <laughs> what were the the samples from Germany like as far as intensity? Well, one of them was pretty intense. Uh, the Rudigutz Goza is a pretty pretty sour. It's not very salty, but it's pretty sour. And we were able to get the Hop Bonhof uh, at that time, and it was a lot milder. And so we shot for something kind of in between. We didn't really know where to go with it, and. You know, I don't think any American brewers did at that time. The only thing they had to try were those two or maybe one or two others. So we we kind of, you know, tasted those. And thought, yeah, we can come up with something that's good. And, you know, I think we did. And we argued over this. The acidity part was easier than the salt part. Uh, we argued over it for a couple of weeks. And finally I said, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to set up the, you know, we have a, a multi-tap jockey box thing. We're going to set it up in front of the pub on a Friday, and everybody that comes in is going to have four samples, no salt to crazy salt, <laughs> and we're going, to let, we're going to let people pick. And so we, you know, we took their, you know, we numbered one through four, and they ranked them one through four, and uh, we, you know, made a very scientific graph. Uh, not scientific. <laughs> and, you know, shockingly, it was kind of right in the middle uh, of our our you know, samples. And so we let that be how much salt we were going to use. And I think it might be a hair too much. In retrospect, I might have gone a little less. 
But I think that you get the effect of it without tasting it and thinking, oh, salt. And I think that's kind of the goal whenever you're making any beer is to, to have people think, oh, that's interesting. What is that? You know, and if, if it punches you in the face, then maybe you went a little too far. So, I mean, even with hops, I mean, it's nice to have hoppy beer and think, oh, those are great. You know, that's very floral or very juicy or whatever. But I don't, I don't think that you want just like one hop punch. I think it should be a little more subtle. That's what I think. Anyway. Have you have you kept the same salt level since that initial choice? Yeah, we have. And we are making a, n- a new beer uh, coming up. And it's not a Goza, but it is a sour beer. And there is going to be a little bit of salt in there. So we've cut, reduced the salt on it way back. And we're not going to call it a Goza. It's sour and it'll have a little salt. But it'll have so many other things going on that we're just going to call it, I think we're calling it tropical sour or something. So we're going to reduce the salt there and see how folks like it. Jay, how has Rare Barrel picked its salt levels? We essentially just uh, add it, we do some boiling, and we do it kind of in a, as a secondary addition before packaging. So we can kind of add a little bit, add a little bit more, add a little bit more, recirculate it within the beer so it's well incorporated um, since we're not doing it on the hot side. And then we just go from there. But it is hotly contested always. you know. Some, And I feel like the... The perception of the salt is a lot different than maybe a standard, a more standard ingredient. I mean, salt's arguably a pretty standard ingredient in beer, but how much fruit character does this have? It's just more basic and relatable than how much salinity is in this beer. So people can really, even in their own perceptions on a, like a daily, inside of a day, it really changes how much they like it or don't. So it's challenging. Yeah. And I always think that a beer should taste like beer first and foremost. So mm-hmm. if whatever you add to it overwhelms it, whether it be hops or salt or, you know, some fruit, if it tastes, you know, if you make a guava beer and all you can taste is guava juice, then I think maybe you missed your mark. I don't know. That's that's me. I'm old. <laughs> old school anyway. <laughs> old school. Yeah. Gotta, old school. Got to keep the school in there. Yeah. Take a quick step back. I think we jumped in really fast uh, on the show here. Uh, the, the setting of all, all these stories is a- Anderson Valley Brewing Company, where oh, yeah. Would it be safe to say your title is brewmaster, or do you have a brewmaster? Mm-hmm. You know, I I waited a long time to to put that in front of my name because it used to be that brewmaster was a titled you know degree from a certified brewing school of some sort in some country, not ours. But you know, I, I went to brewing school for a little while, and uh, after twenty five years in the business, I figured it was okay to to put that in front of it. I remember you saying the same thing back when you were on the session in 2011, that you were always a little sort of wary about that. Yeah. Clearly, you've not made peace with it. <laughs> you know, I'm okay with it. You know, I think certainly after you've been brewing beer for 25 years, you get to be a master. Whether you're a carpenter, you get to be a master uh, at it, you know, if you're any good, and whatever you're doing. But I'm always kind of, I don't know what the right word is, Amused, I guess, when I see you know a guy come out of brewing school and he's he or she's been brewing for a year and they're like, "I'm the brewmaster," and you're like, mm-hmm. "Okay, Alrighty. nice pat on your own back." Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you know, maybe uh, maybe they paid more for their schooling than I did. Yeah. <laughs> so we do have some Anderson Valley beer uh, for us to drink tonight, and uh, thank you for bringing all that. Oh, we yeah. have the Frambois Rosé Goza. Rosa Goza, Rose. uh, you know Rosa Goza, Rosa Goza. <laughs> you know this is a this is a beer. My boss said to me, you know, we'd already made a couple Gozas. Um, the first one had no fruit, which is my favorite, I think. Uh, and then we made one with um, 
what did we do next? Blood Orange, I think, mm-hmm. which was pretty good. I liked it. Um, and then we did a watermelon one, which I don't like as much, but a lot of people like way more than either of the first two. But I'm just not a big watermelon fan. Was that the briny melon? Yeah, the briny yeah. melon. Mm-hmm. And then he said, I want to make one, you know, uh, tr- the owner, Trey White, said, I want to make a, a rosé, you know, like wine kind of combo mix up with Goza. And I thought, that, that's a cool idea. And we'd done a few uh, hybrid wine beers in the past with local wineries, and they were really good. But they were all funky. We let them go a little wild, um, and we used some of the wild yeast that had come off the grapes. And with a Goza, you don't want so much of that wild. It's much more of a clean acidity. So we tried it with, you know, some rosé must, and it was a failure. And, you know, we just we tried several different things, and they didn't work. And then uh, one of our brewers, Peter, said, oh, I got this. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, dude, you go. And he made the formula for this beer. It's got raspberries and rose hips, and it has some it. nice rosé kind of wine flavor. That There's no wine in it. And I think it's a delicious beer. It is my second favorite of the Gozas now, the, the original, my favorite. And it's just super drinkable. It's my girlfriend's favorite. And it, it, I think it, you know, the word crushable, I think, applies. It's low alcohol. It's really easy to drink. Um, it goes well with food. So I was real surprised that, you know, when I read his recipe, I thought, mm-hmm, maybe. <laughs> and then when I tried it, I was like, wow, home run. Really, he just nailed it. Are, uh, are, are all, of the, all of the varietals still in, are they year-round production, all of them? They're supposedly seasonals, but we end up doing a lot of them again. You know, if, if a distributor puts in a big order, we're like, sure, we'll take that. And so you can get most of them at the brewery year-round, um, but out in the market, it's a little harder, you know, to find some of them. We try and keep it seasonal. Right now, we're making this, I know, because I, I pulled them out of the cooler. <laughs> uh, and we're doing the briny melon now. We, there's no blood orange at the moment. That's a summer. If you know, if you're a super desperate Goza fan, you can always come to the brewery. I'm guessing these have been a pretty significant commercial success for you guys, given that you've continued to make them. And no, uh, correct me if that's wrong. Oh, I, no. I see them everywhere, or at least I feel like I do. I, you know, you know, the, it might be a slight exaggeration, but only slight to say that the Goza brand, and to save the brewery, might be a bit much, but certainly took the brewery. To a whole other level uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, we were making, you know, Anderson Valley Brewing has been, has been around about 30-something years, 32 years, I think. And when Trey White bought it in 2010, the brand was a little tired. The old owner had quit putting anything into it, understandably, because he was trying to sell it. So he quit doing innovation for the most part. And, you know, Sierra Nevada suffered some of the same thing. They were, you know, older you know, OG brand, and people just come to think of them as, you know, kind of stodgy. And they did a great job of revamping. And when Trey White came on, he realized that that was something that had to happen immediately. So he's pushed us on innovation a lot. And when we made the Goza, I thought, wow, that was really fun, but nobody's going to drink a sour, salty German right, yeah. beer. The, the wide appeal, you, would, you wouldn't think it would be there, but it has been for this yeah. beer. No, no way. And he's like, oh, this has legs. And I looked at him, and I, inside my head I was thinking, really, dude? Really? <laughs> this has legs? But he was so right, and I was so wrong. He just, you know, he, he saw it. And now, I think a little more than half of our beer sales are in, in one of the, you know, all the Gozas combined are about half of our beer sales. So they've done a lot for the brand. They've really taken us to a new level. And I think most importantly, they've 
reinvigorated the the brand in people's eye, you know, minds out in the market. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, we're no longer an old stodgy brand. We're old, true, <laughs> but we're not stodgy. And um, I think when you try some of our barrel aged sours in, in a few minutes, you'll see that we're trying to push the envelope as much as we can, and you know, still make you know exceptionally good beer. And that's kind of my aim for any of our beers: is that you want to have a second one of them. You know, you don't want to have a, a one ounce pour and then like, eh, that was good, but moving on. I, re- I, I really think that people, when you make a beer, that you should want a second one. Whether, you know, it's in a four ounce glass or, or 16 ounce glass, I think at the end of it, you should think, I want a little more of that. That's our goal. And so we try and, with, even with our sour beers, we don't want them crazy sour. We want to try and keep them reasonable and, and thirst quenching and, you know, make you want another one. Now, Jay, what do you attribute? I'm guessing, you know, you're as familiar with this as I am. You know, I've bought bought many, many cans of this beer over the last, what, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute its wide appeal in an era before sours were really a thing? Well, I think, you know, when I started in the industry, which I don't have 25 years, so you got me there. No master status over here for sure. And uh, But it was, you know, around 2008. And it was at a brewery that was doing sour beers, and the brewery in Orange County. Yeah, oh, and yeah. Great brewery. Uh, yeah, and you know it it was just picking up steam right around then. I mean, but at the same time, kind of on a, it was definitely still beer geeks and still yeah. young. And I think right at this time, maybe mid two thousands to two thousand ten, the I mean, like GABF was just getting. American sour beer as a category yeah. for the first time, and so that it really happened f- quite fast. It really did, and you guys were right there at the beginning, and just you know, kind of nailed it coming out of the gate. I, I feel, you know, I'm sure there was some bumps along the way that we can talk about during the show. Oh, we had bumps, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I mean, yeah, it was there. It was out in my local market, being a Northern California California person, and. Um, yeah, just yeah, the regular goes coming out just was awesome and then yeah, once the variants came out that was that was a game changer as well and really just got people used to sour beer at a comfortable right. availability and price point and approachability on mm-hmm. the flavor side of things, you know, you're talking about kind of a sensible approach to balancing flavors. A lot of you know, kind of the barrel-aged sour beers coming out, I don't know from 2010 to 15 maybe were more extreme more sour more fruit yeah. crazy flavors and so um yeah, i would say anderson valley really took a lot of this interest and made it so approachable um like Fowl was saying you know you should want the second beer whether it's four ounces 16 ounces and i think that's you know that's what these beers do remind me of is that yeah i'll take that six pack and you know, maybe half of it's gone in a night. Maybe it's all gone in a night. You know, you never know. <laughs> all we ask is that you drink six. Yeah. <laughs> we don't ask for much. Yeah. Depends if I'm at home or if I'm out and about. So, yeah. But, you know, we, we were we were very lucky that uh, we got we got Vinny Chalerzo from, you know, Russian River down the street. And Vinny's a great guy. Super helpful. You ever have questions, he's, you know, always happy to talk about them. And, you know, Tommy Arthur was helpful. And all these guys who have already established themselves making great sour beers were helpful, particularly with our barrel program and getting some of those beers going and and giving us ideas. So we've been very lucky. We're in wine country, a lot of barrels there. 
the Goza thing was a little different. People weren't as helpful because they'd never heard of Goza either. <laughs> uh, some people had heard of Goza, but most of the people I talked to, were they were like, what? And, you know, even when I went to Germany to research the book, a lot of German brewers had no idea what I was talking about. And Really? Oh, yeah. I got crazy lucky there. There's a guy named Benedict. I think his last name is pronounced Cook. He is obsessed with Berliner Weiss and Goza. In fact, he's writing the the BA book for Berliner Weiss. Oh, awesome! Now, great guy. Uh, and I kind of had run across his his blogs and emailed him. And he speaks good English, which is a major help for me because my German, you know, not so good, <laughs> a little rusty. And he he said, "Well, it's too bad you're not going to be in Berlin next week because I'll be there when we're, there's a gathering of Berliner Weiss brewers." I said, "Next week, I'm going to be in Berlin next week." <laughs> And so I ran into him, and he introduced me to all these Berliner Weisser breweries and brewers. And they, you know, we talked about souring beer that way because Berliner Weiss and Goza are very closely uh, related, uh, very similar beers. And then he made recommendations about you know breweries I should go to as I drove uh, first to Goslar and then down to Leipzig to, to tour those breweries. One after one afternoon, I went to the Onabedenken, which is kind of the last of the great. You know, Goza Shankas or the Goza taverns, and I walked in and ordered some food and a couple beers in my bad German. And there were two older guys sitting at the table next to me, and they were drinking. And they got up to leave, and the guy said to me in English, because it was pretty obvious that I didn't speak German. <laughs> he said, "So, what do you think of this beer?" And I said, "I came all the way from California to have this particular beer." And he said, "Oh, I am the brewer." <laughs> you know, how lucky is that, right? And I didn't even know they had a brewery. And I just meant I'd been, I'd come to, from California to have that beer style. But he's like, oh, yeah, well, let me show him. He took me in back and he showed me wow. their little brewery. And they'd only been brewing about six months. He had been a home brewer who retired. And the chef there um, had asked him to come and help him brew some beer. And he said, tomorrow I take you to the other breweries in town. So he knew wow. all the brewers and he took me around. And it was just very fortuitous. Incredible. I want to maybe get into some of that trip and some of the things you learned over there and maybe the beginnings of this book, but maybe we should get to a quick break, Scott. All right. Take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. All right. We are back. Back with Thou Allen, brewmaster of Anderson Valley Brewing Company. It's nice enough to join us in studio today in our lovely Brewing Network studios. Again, a long way from the garage in the old studio, but <laughs> <laughs> we, have, uh, we have another great beer that we just opened in front of us. Uh, which one is this one, Thou? This is uh, what we call are calling Thribble, and it is a, originally it was 100% a barrel fermented and aged but now we start it we give it a couple days in stainless because it's a lot less messy and then we run it into wood and let it finish up so this is the wort is our our triple wort and we ferment it with a house culture mixed culture that came from our property and uh, we we kind of do a solera with it and you know grow it and repitch it and then towards the end of fermentation, we add in black currants. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite strong. It's triple strength. Yeah. Um, it's got black currants, and it's soured with uh, a whole mess of different things, including 
Britannomyces, a bunch of lactose, some PDO, uh, yeast, which I believe is our house yeast, but it may not be, <laughs> some wild yeast. So there's a lot going on. And I think I think it's one of the, our best beers that we make. This beer is excellent. It's fantastic. I love it. It's so you know clean and drinkable, very fruity. Another beer, kind of two in a row here that have very vinous character. And but although this is, I see now ten and a half percent. Yeah, it's whoa. There's no not even like a kind of late heat for me. It's just very integrated and dangerous. It's sneaky dangerous. Bang. I had a I had a pint a few months ago at the pub. <laughs> Because they let me pour pints, which is probably <laughs> probably a mistake on their part. Your hangover yeah. just went away last week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so I had a pint, and I thought that was that was good. Yeah, I was gonna, I, and it was this nice sunny day, which was kind of rare a month or so ago. So I had another pint. Don't mind if I do. Yeah, and I thought about having a third pint until I stood up from that second pint. <laughs> yeah, I thought, eh, yeah, I could do that. Pills are made. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I want to get into this beer and your. You know, more barrel focused program, but I also want to pay off the Germany trip that we were talking about before the oh, yeah. break. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how that day was when you went around and got to experience, uh, you know, and it was an escorted trip uh, to experience Goza and kind of just the German beer scene. What did you learn that differed from what you had been doing or just kind of stuck out as interesting? When you when you write one of these books, like when we did the barley wine, Dick Cantwell and I realized that you can't write a book without going to where the beer is and where it's from. So we took a, a trip to England and went up to, you know, Burton on Trent and uh, around London. We were very again super lucky. Uh, my career is filled with lucky uh, happenstances. So I, you know, when I went to write the Goza book, I thought, well, you got to go to Germany. I'm going to have to go to Goslar, where Goza's from. Have to go. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> you really do have to go. And it's a beautiful town. It's a job requirement. Yeah, you have to go to Leipzig because uh, that's where Goza ended up. It's it's life. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating about the Goza style is it's you know it's evolution. It's probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest, existing beer style in the world. Back in the day, there were there were really two kinds of beers. Uh, there were heavy brown beers with a lot of alcohol as preservative. Those often were made with with uh, not often, always made with some sort of herbs and spice, uh, often a gruit mix. And alcohol, you know, kept them from, from going sour. And the other type of beer was a, a white beer. Could mean wheat or just white in color. Vice, you know, can mean either. And it's a, there's a whole family of these beers. Uh, you know, Grodsky, I think, is in there. I think Belgian Wit. Uh, probably is a lighter addition to that that group. Certainly Berliner Weiss. But Goza is, you know, the one that has lasted. And these beers were sour. Uh, they were meant to be drunk young and drunk sour. And they were low in alcohol. And they didn't have anything to preserve them uh, from, going, from being sour. There were no hops used a thousand years ago in beer. And sometimes they had herbs in them. Sometimes they didn't. Uh, they're different regional variations, but those are the two kinds of beers. And brown beers are, of course, gone. Nobody really makes uh, high alcohol, uh, gruit brown beers anymore to speak of, except for maybe uh, maybe Brian Will Hunt yeah. or Will and oh, at yeah. Cambridge. Will at Cambridge, yeah, those two nutty guys. <laughs> yeah. Jay, the next frontier for the rare barrel. Yeah. Uh, all gruits all uh, the time. I will. I'm not going to step on Will and Brian's corner. Those are two great brewers. Yeah, and great guys. Yeah. 
But you don't you don't see a lot of them, and there's a reason. You know, no one wants to drink a eight and a half percent brown beer that's made without hops. It's you know, and and debatably, some of the herbs that they used are uh, toxic. Maybe too strong <laughs> of a word, but you know, probably not good for your hangover. Uh, so you know, the survivor was the the wit, the white beers, and of those, Goza was the one who uh, you know survived the longest in Belerweis, and. Its story, I think, is is very interesting. You know, it was this beer that uh, came out of Goslar and was emulated by surrounding towns, and they made a lot of uh, Goza-style beers or Gozas, you know, different towns put their name in front of the Goza. And at one point, it was uh, one of the leading exports uh, in Hamburg. Hmm. And, you know, they were making a lot of it in a lot of different places. And uh, then it died out for a whole bunch of different reasons, war, uh, fires. You know, str- surprisingly, back in the day, breweries had fires a lot and burned down a good chunk of the town often. Everything did. You know, only in the last five minutes. It was like, oh, how do we know? Oh, um, the records, they all burned in a fire in 1938. Yeah. We have no idea. The fires, yeah. It they was were common. a thing. Yeah, yeah. It, definitely. Since, you you know, you need to boil the word at some point and everything was fired with, you know, flame, things happened that were not good, and, like, kettle tipped over. And, mm-hmm. you know, interesting, in the research of this book, I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know. And that's one great thing about writing any book is that you find out a bunch of stuff you don't know. And it turns out that breweries, uh, back in the day, you know, eight, six to 8,000 years ago, didn't, there weren't breweries. There was a brew kettle that went around town, to the different places that called themselves breweries. You know, this is Bob's brand. This is Sam's brand. This is, you know, Wendy's brand. I don't know. And they, they would, the kettle would just move around town, or sometimes the kettle would stay stationary and people would just come and use it. You'd be the city kettle, you know. Really? And you'd bring in your other equipment and you'd make your beer and, you know, haul it off or it'd ferment there. Yeah. And so, Contract brewing. Right. Kind of. And... You know, the only the only thing that you owned were, you know, your fermenters probably. And, and, and back in the day, everything was made of wood except the kettle. The kettle was the one thing that couldn't be made of wood. So, you know, y- your wort cooling was made of wood. Your fermenters were made of wood. Your barrels that you went to market with, if you did that, were made of wood. Everything was made of wood. And wood, of course, you can't sanitize it or sterilize it. And so there was uh, resident microbes in there that either 100% fermented what you were making or, you know, were part of it. Uh, yeast wasn't really well understood and, until just a couple hundred years ago. And, you know, something people would say to me, like when you wrote the book, oh, well, you know, what records did you find? And, you know... It, they all burned in a fire. I found nothing. <laughs> they all burned in a fire. But you got to remember, the printing press wasn't invented until the 1400s. So, you know, any records that were that predated the printing press meant that some monk, were, you know, copied them from some other monk who copied them from some other monk. And brewers were a pretty secretive groups, so they didn't, you know, didn't share probably as, certainly as much as we do. Although, yeah, I what was the most popular pa- podcast back then? Um, <laughs> Not the session. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> the Guggen, the Guggen, you know, the, I don't know. You got me. Um, yeah, you know, some things, although we're probably pretty similar. I bet you when brewers traveled, they, or, you know, got together to brew, they sat around and talked about beer because that's what we do. You know, the fact that a beer was sour back then, I don't think really 
really made much difference because everything was sour. You know, your clothes were sour. You bathed once a year, you know, and you walk into a tavern. You can only imagine what that must have smelled like. Spilt sour beer on the dirt floor and tables and your sour neighbor. That's probably one thing we really can't wrap our minds around now as, as contemporary American people yeah. is, is how much everything must have just stunk to high heaven everywhere you went. Yeah. People smelled garbage, yeah. latrines. Horse crap in the streets. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I read some story unrelated to the book about London and how they had open trenches that, you know, the, the sewer ran down. It must have been just horrific smelling. We can't imagine. Yeah. Everything is so sterile and pleasant now. Well, what if in 200 years we look back and we're like, man. Wait, this stunk now? Remember we didn't have uh, <laughs> yeah. infrared showers? Yeah, no kidding. Everyone's Where are we going now. from here? Yeah. It's so true. So you, I'm guessing a, a fair amount of your ghost book, Fal, is describing in detail some of your travels to, to Germany. Some of them. Uh, there's, a, there's a decent history part because that, as we just talked about, had to, have, had to be in there to kind of lay the, the foundation. And then some about the travels. Uh, there is, you know. Uh, some talk about that, and uh, my meeting Edgar, the the brewer at Onabedankin, and just the wild history that goes ahead, where it uh, died out from war and fires, and then came back and was rebirthed in another city, in you know, and it moved south, uh, kind of west, down to Leipzig, and how in Leipzig at one point it was the most popular beer in town, and that uh, you know people wrote poems and songs, and there were postcards that talked about Goza. I mean, it was a true phenomenon a couple hundred years ago, and then it died out um, for, again, many reasons. Lager production, uh, part of it, no doubt. But, you know, wars again. Uh, World War One and World War Two were pretty hard on Germany uh, and their, their beer culture. Goza's in particular, or did they just the beer in general? I think beer in, in general, but Goza's maybe in particular, uh, a confluence of things where uh, the war created a shortage of materials and changing habits, you know, or desires. You know, people really were drawn drawn towards lager beers in a lot of ways and hopped beers in a lot of ways. And hop beers certainly travel a lot better than uh, these, these white beers. And, you know, some interesting things, uh, you know, that you read is when hops first came out, and, you know, Goza doesn't have much hops in it for, for a whole bunch of reasons, but when hop beers first came out, the king and his, you know, minions sold Gruet, and they wanted to keep people making Gruet beer because they had the Gruet rights, and that was a tax for them. And when hops came out, they weren't part of that. And so they were like, no, you can't use hops. But brewers quickly found out that if you used a portion of hops, you didn't have to make an 8% beer. You could make a 5% beer. You reduce your malt costs by, you know, almost 50%, and you could sell it for the same amount. And, you know, they quickly realized the profit in using hops as a preservative. Uh, you didn't have to have alcohol as your preservative. So it was a qu- pretty quick changeover, you know. It took probably about 100 years, 150 years, which... In, On the Earth's timeline is short. Yeah, short. So... In that way, it was pretty quick. They went from making you know high alcohol or sour beers to these hoppy beers in a pretty quick transition. And considering that the monarch was against the transition, it, it happened a lot faster than you would think. And all of a sudden, hop beers were the thing, and lagers were mostly what they were making. And so 
those beers kind of pushed out a lot of other styles. I want to stop the. I want to continue the history part on the next show. Yeah. Before we do show break, I want to get into this particular beer that's in front of us. Let's do it. Yeah. So this is more in the barrel age vein of things. And Absolutely. As you're saying, yeah, this is you know aging in wine barrels for. You know, up up to a year or around a year. Minimum of a year. Minimum of a year. And tell us a little bit about, you know, I think, as you said, the Goza program is a big part of the brewery. But what, you know, putting that into context, I think, is important. But what is the the barrel side of things? How big of a part of the brewery is that? Uh, you know, that depends on how you want to slice that up. Sales-wise, pretty small. Uh, Barrel-wise, pretty big at the moment. You know, we really got behind our, our wood barrel program we have about two thousand barrels wow. in production which is a lot what's the rare barrel at we have uh like 800 for context wow 10, okay less than half wow okay yeah we had a lot of sour barrels now are we selling those i don't know uh we also have a fairly robust uh non-sour barrel program which is about eight eight hundred barrels mm-hmm. and then we sell of course non-sour beers or non-barrel beers so you have but, almost three thousand barrels on premise almost wow yeah. it's huge okay yeah and we got a little carried away <laughs> um, we had an extra barn. That'll we happen. Filled it up. That'll happen. Uh, so we got a lot of sour beers. We make a lot of sour beers, but we have found out that um, people, you know, selling these kinds of sour beers is it's a whole different animal, and you're selling to a, a different group of people. And you know, again, I, I think this is a really good beer, mm-hmm. and I'm not just saying that. I, I really do. I mean. You guys, it's be good. honest. It's if a wonderful beer. Good, it's, just legit. Say so. it's legit. And good. the acidity is clean. The, it's a wonderful beer. What is it? Venice? Vinus? Venice. Venice? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that character. Whiny. Is, it, yeah, it's, it's very whiny. It's very pleasant. Yeah, it, that comes through from the barrels, I think. And, you know, it's got a little bread in there. So after you swallow, you get a nice kind of like hit of the, you know, kind of funky, sweaty uh, bread character. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on there. So um, we're pretty happy with this beer. It's certainly the beer that we're we're most happy with and we have a bunch of other barrel aged beers but this this beer is made with a house culture too so it's not we didn't you know go out and buy a a yeast strain or a lacto strain or a pedio strain this is all kind of just what was given to us so we're particularly happy with this beer and we certainly would like to see you know people drink more of it and sell more of it but got to get out in front of people somehow the Brett character comes across to me as sort of subtle. Mm-hmm. Do you experience it that way, Jay? Yeah, definitely. It reminds me a lot of our the the beers we came out with the first few years that we were doing barrel aged sour beer, and then we we just started to do a lot more hopping. And I think the hop and Brett interaction really drove a lot more aromatics. But this, you get a lot more of the the oak, the fruit. And it's just a, it's really nice. And the, I think the one thing that maybe strikes me the most about this beer is the ten point five and how yeah. easy drinking it is. Like uh, yeah, easily a three pint beer, which is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> do, do the do the cultures not have an issue with that higher alcohol? I thought that was a problem. Uh, I mean, if it's a mixed culture with lactobacillus and pediococcus, then the PDO doesn't isn't as inhibited as certain strains of lactobacillus, and then. There are even some strains of lactobacillus that will go past around 8% or past 5 or 10 IBU. So it just really depends, and especially if you're kind of cultivating it in-house, there's even less kind of known about it. So you push the limits and see where the kind of the culture goes as a, as a group. And, yeah, obviously it doesn't have a problem with this. Not that it's overly sour. It's like very nice, no. nicely. Super balanced. Yeah. Why the decision to go higher with the ABV? Uh 
Andy Hooper is to blame for this one too. <laughs> Andy, Andy, Damn it, uh, Andy. He, he it was, this was kind of his brainchild. He was like, you know, why don't we do something with the, the triple word? And I was like, all right, you know, like we wanted to sour it and see what it'd be like. And in retrospect, maybe maybe we should have started with something lighter. But you know, it doesn't have much hops in it, so we knew that the bacteria wasn't going to be inhibited by it. And at the time, we didn't really think about the alcohol that much. In retrospect, maybe we should have. Uh, but as Jay said, you know, the, these things work together in, in, in strange ways sometimes. And they each have their time, you know. I think that the lacto comes in and starts souring pretty much immediately. And then if it's inhibited by alcohol, it's already done its job. And then the yeast takes off, and the yeast produces the alcohol. And uh, then the PDO works its way in, and... Uh, it may make some funky flavors, but the bread comes in behind it and cleans a lot of those up. So these mixed cultures are are fun in that way, and you never know what's going to happen. You know, sometimes they're awesome, and then other times, you know, we've had uh, several failures trying to do things from uh, with cult, mixed cultures around the property that just didn't work out. They were too weird, or mm-hmm. you know, too acidic, or not acidic enough. And that happens a lot, I think, in, in barrel production. The one thing we've learned when making barrel beers is it's really all about blending. And, you know, if we taste 20 barrels, two of them are going to be just unbelievably awesome. And everybody's like, let's just package those. And I'm like, well, you know, we can do that. But what about these other 18, you know, barrels, two of which suck? Now, the two that suck, we throw out. Obviously, no one wants to blend in sucky beer. But that leaves you with, you know, 16 barrels that are somewhere in between awesome and not awesome. And you have to decide how you're going to blend them up and which ones will go into the blends and which ones will be set aside for more whatever they need, more time, more souring, more whatever. So blending has, for us anyway, and I assume it's the same with you guys and, and other barrel production beers, is, is blending is a big thing. Each barrel is surprisingly different. You know, they all have the same ingredients put in you know, together at the same time, and yet the the flavors can be completely different. Yep, separated, identical twins. You know, yeah, just oh wow, you're you're different now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when they come back together, the nature's Absolutely. the same, but the nurturing definitely. Well, I want to get into these topics and a lot more, but let's do a quick show break. Indeed, and then we'll come back with Fallon and more of his great beers. Question mark? (laughs) (laughs) We're doing it. Thanks to Scott and Bevo. Thanks to Fal for being here. Thanks, Thanks Fal. Thank you, all of our great sponsors, all of our great listeners, for hanging in there with us. The Ghost Book by Fal Allen. Get it. Go buy it. Please buy one. Until next time, stay sour. Stay sour.